In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we need. It's a right as we kept out of sight for no I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Joining me on Notably Disney today is Dr. Peter C. Kunze, an assistant professor of communication at Tulane University. Peter's new book, or Pete's new book, uh, Staging a Comeback, uh, Broadway, Hollywood, and the Disney Renaissance explores a compelling era for the Walt Disney Company, uh, one that ultimately found the fluttering corporation transform into a really bustling conglomerate in large part due to its uh, leaning into and uh, now reliance in some respects on musicals. Uh, I'm really excited to discuss your inquiry into this fascinating time for Disney. Uh, it's it's a it's a really just well-researched book. It's expertly written. And I think Disney fans and music scholars and other folks who appreciate the entertainment industry are gonna get a lot out of it. So welcome to the show, Pete. Thank you so much for having me, Brett. And thank you for your kind words about my book. Well, I I, uh, I am very judicious with praise, and I think it's uh, it's really wonderful. And I think there are so many of us in the Disney community who appreciate this era of Disney history, and it's been written about from a variety of different lenses. You, in your book, you you know you quote uh, and paraphrase from uh, autobiographies like Michael Eisner. You include other uh, musical theater texts, one of which uh, by Amy, Dr. Amy Ositinsky, who was actually one of our original guests on Notably Disney. You, you draw from a variety of different sources, but ultimately this is an era that has in many ways been well chronicled, but not necessarily packaged in the manner that you provide, which is really an emphasis on musicals as an art form, how Disney during the 80s and into the 90s and onward intersects with a, a variety of different industries and ultimately reinforces this notion of Disney being a centerpiece for musical storytelling and and the, the value of musicals. So I'm wondering what what drew you to this topic from the onset? Sure. Um, there were multiple things that kind of brought me into it, right? Um, the first was kind of just 
where my career was heading. I originally trained in English, but I found myself writing more and more about film studies. Um, and the more I wrote about film, the more I realized that I didn't know a lot about film, um, that I understood narratively what was going on, but I didn't understand the form. I didn't understand the industry behind it. I didn't understand the technology. So at a certain point, I just said, well, I have to go back to school and learn this um, because I really enjoy writing about it, but I'm aware of my deficits. Uh, and in particular, I wanted to be a film historian, um, which meant I was going to be in the archive. Um, and the thing with being in an archive is you go in there and you often don't know what you're going to write about. Um, you let the archive tell you the story it's ready to tell you. Um, and at the time I was dating uh, someone who was studying at Johns Hopkins University. And I had been doing work on children's literature and children's culture. So I knew I wanted to do a project that was the intersection of children's culture and media studies. And I realized that um, the Library of Congress had acquired the papers of Howard Ashman. Um, and Ashman was a name I was vaguely familiar with because I was a child of the 80s and grew up watching um, what we refer to now as the Disney Renaissance films. Um, and I had seen the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty. Um, so I was interested to see what kind of story the archive would open itself up to. Um, one of the things we do in academia is we often think about terms that we're using um, and thinking about how we're using them and how they came to be. And one of the things that struck me is a lot of people have written about the Disney Renaissance, but not a lot of people have actually explained it and gone through and done the work as to what do we, what does it mean to call something a Renaissance? What was happening to Disney at the time? Um, and as someone who was training in historiography, I was always a little suspicious of how convenient the timeline was. It started with The Little Mermaid. It happened under, under Michael Eisner. Um, when did it become a renaissance? What does a renaissance look like? And as I kind of dug into Howard's papers, as I looked at other collections that were covering the same period, including Don Bluth's papers, including Linda Wolverton's papers, including papers uh, from Bob Thomas, who was a journalist that many of your listeners are probably familiar with because he wrote the Art of Animation books, um, I realized the narrative was not as simple as one would perceive. And in fact, a, a historian told me once that all history projects are essentially the same. Um, they argue that it's more complicated than you realize, and it's been happening for longer than you realize. So the thrust of my book was showing that the Disney Renaissance is more complicated than we realize and was actually happening for longer than we realized. And I really wanted to complicate the idea that Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg were the geniuses behind it, um, and that uh, they alone had saved the Disney company, um, and that they had saved the Disney company from a period of um, complete uh, despair. Um, in fact, what I found is that a lot of the success that Eisner and Katzenberg had was already in the works at the company, and they benefited from hiring really good people, and they hired benefited from uh, a good economy, arguably an inflated economy, uh, and they benefited from changes in the industry, um, some of which they followed, some of which they started. And I wanted to kind of map that out in a way that I hadn't seen done in the level of detail that I hope to do in my own book. 
Well, it's that level of depth and that level of, I think you used the word interrupting, um, you're, you're, this kind of notion of interrupting common narratives, because it's not just the executives, it's the the creators, the, 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 the visionaries who were, you know, on the ground floor, you know, with with story, with music, through art, all these different elements. I do want to uh, hone in on one piece of, of this era, you, you know, the notion of Eisner and Wells and, and ultimately Katzenberg really reinventing Disney that had been struggling and the notion of that being the origin story. What I love about your book is that you really, you say in the introduction, you know, Card Walker and Ron Miller were making decisions that supported the company's expansion in the 80s, you know, the Disney Channel, Touchstone, so many of these different ventures that Disney had yet to explore, that ultimately those, and Epcot, of course, those launching, like, right at the end of their um, time in those key roles, and but yet a lot of the attributions, uh, the positive attributions are attached to their successors. Why do you feel like so many scholars, writers, even people in the Disney community overlook the contributions that those folks made that ultimately supported Eisner and Wells' success? Now, that's an interesting question. I think part of it is that Eisner and Katzenberg really played the press brilliantly. And one of the things that I think folks will see in reading my book is how often I'm quoting Eisner and Katzenberg talking to the press. Um, how brilliant they were in finding allies uh, at the Wall Street Journal, particularly at the New York Times, um, at the Los Angeles Times and Variety, who were willing to kind of give them a platform to talk about all the amazing things they were doing. Um, and in fact, the way that Eisner and Katzenberg were doing this was causing a lot of tension between the two of them and was also causing a lot of ire with Roy Disney, who was very upset about the what he perceived to be the ego aspect. So as a historian, what concerns me, especially as someone who comes out of a, a critical tradition, um, is following the narrative that's being sold to us. Um, and for those of us who do media history, Disney is a particularly interesting company because it has a commercial and cultural investment in its own history. It produces its own books. Um, it promotes its own version of its past. And it's been doing so ever since the Disneyland series in 1954. Um, so I think it's perfectly fine and acceptable and exciting to be a fan of Disney, but we also have to be cautious of the kinds of histories that they're giving us um, and think about the ways in which they might be incomplete or self-aggrandizing. Um, or just incorrect. Um, and I think a more complicated narrative of what was happening here is that Eisner and Katzenberg really didn't see the future of the company being in animation. Um, they were more than willing to let it kind of wither away initially. Um, and it was retroactively that they realized that something in animation is happening and we should run with it. Um, but we can clearly see by mapping out the strategies that they were employing in their early days of the company that um, they did not see animation at the forefront of the future of the company um, and only came to it later um, and then created this kind of renaissance narrative as if that had been the intention all along. When in fact, I think if Roy Disney had not been there 
um, we would have had a very different company today if the company would have even survived. And I think one, that's one of the things that's interesting in looking at this history is the early strategy was produce live action comedies, um, which is great for box office in the short term, but it doesn't provide that kind of fountain of stories and revenue that come with The Little Mermaid, right? That come with direct-to-video sequels, that come with uh, taking it to Broadway, that come with a television series and video games, right? Um, so there was some kind of um, tactical real, realignment that led them to realize like, oh no, animation's the future. Um, and in some ways, the Disney Renaissance is a Renaissance to the extent that they really went back to Walt style strategies, you know, what, what Christopher Anderson calls total merchandising and thinking about the films being the center of the company and being almost like a heart that is pumping blood to the theme parks, to the, to um, the, to the uh, television division, to publishing, to music. Um, and of course, uh, during this period, quite importantly, towards home video, which um, Disney did not think was going to be a productive avenue for them. In fact, Disney was an active um, litigant in preventing home video initially, uh, and again, came around uh, later on. So um, I'm not necessarily chiding Eisner and Katzenberg for, um, you know, not seeing the future. That's not the point. But to see that, you know, part of what they did do that was important was kind of realigning their thinking um, and realizing that it was kind of storytellers who brought this kind of knowledge and experience and training and understanding and theorization. I, I slipped there on said theater, but theorization of how art works. Um, that was kind of brilliantly um, capitalized upon by the company. Um, and so kind of moving it away from a story of the greatness of Eisner and Katzenberg and kind of pulling back and seeing this kind of network of individuals, not all of whom had the same amount of power, but all of whom had um, contributions to make that were that were fueled by various things, right? Whether it was business acumen or whether it was a knowledge of musical theater that helped to kind of really um, reinvest in not only animation, but in animated musicals in particular. And what strikes me as particularly fascinating is that it, this is only for a time, right? I mean, it's, you know, you have um, Little Mermaid in 1989, and by the end of the 90s, Disney is starting to pull away from animated musicals, and by the early 2000s, Disney's pulling away from cell animation altogether. So, I mean, you know, thinking about this kind of fortuitous convergence of musical theater and animation um, that ultimately is kind of pushed aside by um, digital animation coming in and um, experimenting with other forms of franchise storytelling. So that's a long answer to your question, but, you know, kind of thinking about the fact that um, we should always kind of raise an eye to the received story and think about who's telling it and why. Well, and that's what really effective documentaries accomplish. And similarly, books like yours, you talk about the challenges associated with Walt Disney Home Video in its early days, because you're, you know, you're saying that the company was super protective of its material. Not all films were being released on this format. 
And then in addition to that, um, there wasn't a ton of content from the library that they could draw from, right? They were, there were, you know, a, a couple dozen animated uh, feature length films and it's live action catalog. I mean, decent catalog, but it wasn't an endless supply, especially because they were re-releasing films in theaters uh, as additional revenue sources, especially in the eighties when they weren't uh, producing as much original content. So it makes me wonder, Pete, like, what opportunities did you view with home video in terms of allowing viewers to engage with musicals and animated films again and again? Yeah, I mean, I think the value of home video was the rewatching, right? And that um, musical theater is such an interesting um, art form in that so much narrative information is being conveyed in the songs. That's the point of the integrated musical in particular. Um, and home video was kind of the perfect format for musical theater because you could go back and rewatch, right? So I think for a lot of us who love musical theater and who were born in the, you know, the 70s and the 80s, you know, it was those Disney animated musicals and, you know, it was shows like Into the Woods being on home video where we kind of saw the kind of the artistry and the complexity and the integration taking place and could appreciate it in a way that, you know, a, a single viewing, which is, you know, traditionally the, one of the defining characteristics of theater, home video really kind of was able to capitalize upon that. Um, and I think what we see during this period is, you know, Disney focuses on the lesser classics in the beginning, including some that were not musicals. Like, you know, um, I mean, depends on how we define musical, right? We don't have to be gatekeepery about it. But, you know, let, let's say Robin Hood obviously has music in it, but is not, you know, the, the same uh, storytelling approach as we see in, in Beauty and the Beast. Um, and then they kind of do, you know, those kind of compilation videos and then they start to release the the bigger films right the the, the seemingly untouchable films um and i mean every one of them it seems is landing on some of the best-selling videos of all time and one of the things that's always struck me about disney and, and its control of its history is um and, and other scholars have talked about this like uh, moya luckett but like you know um fantasia was an abysmal failure when it was initially released right and Disney kind of resold it to us as a classic and resold it to us as this kind of, you know, legendary film. And in home video, I think, really kind of sold that narrative of its success. Um, and it's a strategy that Disney is still using. So home video is, is not only an important commercial strategy for Disney, it's an interesting historiographic strategy. Um, I mean, I bought the DVD of Tron a few years ago, and it said the original classic along the top. Um, and Tron was a huge failure critically and commercially. Um, it's an important film in the company's history in terms of what it was doing technologically, of course, and it has its loyal fans. Um, but it's kind of bold of them to call it a classic. Um, and I think that the response to Tron Legacy and the decision to kind of pursue Tron and the theme parks kind of speaks to this interesting kind of, um, you know, um, the past is never past for Disney and uh, it's it's often prologue. And, um, and they're often kind of finessing it. Um, so the task of the historian is often holding them accountable to that um, sleight of hand they're doing. 
Yeah, well, and it's, and it's funny, too, to see with certain properties how they can be reinvented over time uh, across different audiences. I think Tron's a good example. And um, let, let's I, I want to learn a little bit more about your your process that might spark some further conversation about the the ultimate findings that you're, you're able to unveil here. You talk about engaging in archival research for conducting this book, and I'd love to hear more about uh, what you did there. But in concert with that, it sounds like you also conducted a number of interviews with key figures um, of this period, including, as you mentioned, your acknowledgments, director Don Hahn, uh, screenwriter Wendell Wolverton, and even uh, one of our favorite people, my favorite people, Alan Menken, uh, the untouchable Alan Menken, among others. <laughs> what was your process in terms of doing what a good historian does, where they're you know, looking at secondary sources to be sure, but also gathering that you know, original um, content from from the individuals directly involved in this period. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it certainly is a lot of layers and a lot of writing and rewriting. But first, you know, it was kind of tracking down how have we been talking about this, right? Um, so looking at animation history, looking at studies of Disney, looking at um, both, say, popular trade books, but also um, academic studies, right? And, and a, a fairly consistent narrative about what the Disney Renaissance was and why it mattered and when it happened and who was involved. Um, and I think Don Hahn's Waking Sleeping Beauty in some ways started to kind of open the door to thinking about Disney Renaissance with a little bit more nuance and, and um, finesse than perhaps even scholars had given it attention to. Um, but it really was a deep dive into the Ashman archive and starting with, um, you know, Mermaid, Beauty, Aladdin, and then realizing, well, where does Little Shop fit into this, right? Um, I was a big fan of Little Shop on home video as a kid. Um, and Little Shop is crucial to how do we get to Little Mermaid? Um, and then, you know, how does Alan come in? And where do Alan and Howard meet? Well, they meet at the BMI workshop on how to write musical theater. Well, who's Lehman Engel? Who's this guy who's writing it? What is he teaching them? So then it's reading what Lehman Engel wrote, because Lehman Engel wrote a lot about how the musical works and realizing that artists are not just divinely inspired creators, right? They're often working through a tradition, through formula, through conventions that are taught and retaught tested, retested, um, that are understood, right? And Howard, in his papers, very much laying out Engelian ideas of here's how the musical theater works, right? You have tent poles, you have to have songs distributed throughout. You know, they, they serve character function, they have a narrative function, they have a thematic function. Um, and not just putting a song in, in a way that's entertaining, putting a song in to actually do work in that moment. And that's why I think looking at a film like Oliver and Company versus Little Mermaid is really crucial for showing, you know, the role that Ashman had in that moment, right? So part of my process is not just looking at what Ashman says he's doing, it's then looking at the films themselves, right? Um, then in addition to that archival work in Ashman's papers and in related people, basically anyone who has donated material that's not in the Disney archive, you know, I tried to get to, right? So 
Um, the Thomas Papers and the Wolverton Papers are in LA. Howard's stuff is in uh, DC. Don Bluth, who of course famously left Disney in the late 70s, um, his papers are in Savannah. Um, the uh, Kyle Rennick, who was Ashman's collaborator at the WPA Theater where he worked and produced Little Shop, his papers are the New York Public Library. So there's all these individuals who kind of offered that background. But then I needed something a little bit more rigorous and systematic. So that's when I'm going through, you know, basically trying to start in 1980 or so, you know, so roughly nine years before Mermaid <clears throat> and see what kind of coverage of Disney am I seeing in the Hollywood Reporter, Variety, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Magazine, Theater Week, you know, all of these different publications and literally sitting, you know, in the library or in the archive and going issue by issue to see the coverage of what's happening in Hollywood, what's happening on Broadway, what's happening at Disney and trying to create a timeline. And literally I have, you know, very, very long documents on my computer of like, you know, on July 3rd, 1982, the New York Times reported this and trying to trace themes and connections across time to offer a context for the creative labor that Ashman was doing. And then once I got through both the archival work, the textual analysis, and kind of that background of digging into the trade and popular press, I had gaps, right? Or I had contradictions or, um, and so you need to go and talk to people, right? Um, and the thing that was very beneficial to me uh, is that Howard's papers were donated by his sister, Sarah Ashman Gillespie, and his partner, Bill Lausch. And they were very generous with their time, and they were able to connect me with others. Uh, the other thing that helped is social media. A lot of these animators, um, artists, um, theater performers, and artists are readily available on social media. And I benefited from the fact that I was writing about Howard, Broadway, musical theater, Disney, and people who wanted to see Howard's story being told. And this remember, this was, you know, before the documentary Howard came out too, that I started this project. So, you know, Howard was someone who was was known, but I think in some ways his his image and his legacy has become so much better understood in the last few years in particular. But, but folks who worked with him, who loved him, who were annoyed by him, but admired him, you know, they were happy to talk about it. But that also points to another problem, right, is that sometimes people who were there don't have the same story. <laughs> um, so this becomes an interesting struggle as a historian is, you know, someone says, well, we did it this way, or someone says we did it this way. Sometimes they don't have enough power to know why it was done that way. Sometimes they're protecting themselves or others. So, you know, in... in it's not just about getting the story, but in some ways it's about getting the stories. And, and there are moments in the book where I found myself having to kind of present both sides or multiple versions of something because that is true for the person who said it probably. Um, that is how they understood it. And I was not going to be able to come down firmly and say it was absolutely this because rarely is it a single cause. But, um, you know, writing history is a challenge because you're often looking for information and sources in various places, but that doesn't mean the information is reliable. Um, so there was a lot of, even as I, even after I had submitted the book to go out for peer review, 
I was still finding factual errors in the first page. You know what I mean? And I'm sure there are still some in there, but um, this was by no means an attempt to write the, the last book on the Disney Renaissance. I was just writing the next one on the Disney Renaissance. And I look forward to the writers who come after me, who find find things out that I couldn't find out and, and correct my version. But um, I hope that it inspires that kind of interest in it. How do you sort through all of that information that you curated and also figuring out how to establish boundaries? Because, you know, each chapter, it's abundantly clear that you're not just focusing on Disney as a, as an, as a company, but also, you know, Hollywood more broadly and Broadway and even, um, you know, business and, and other sectors. Like it's a kind of a confluence of so many different uh, industries and spaces. And yet, one can only do so much in, in covering that in a chapter or or illustrating as you often do, like uh, let's look at 1994 and, and like parsing out all the different uh, aspects. Yeah, I mean, I think for, I have one document on my computer that is the coverage of Disney between 1980 and 2000. I have another document that's what's going on in Hollywood from 1980 to 2000. I have another document that's what's happening on Broadway. Um, and that was good because, you know, if I read an article in American theater, if I read an article in variety, if I read something, I could always just kind of go and plug it into those timelines. And um, in writing the book itself, I was um, really following the lead of um what's called the circuit of media model, right? And kind of paying attention to, you know, what was going on in the industry, what's happening on the production of this uh, film or show, then what's happening in the show itself. Um, and then how is it being received, right? How are critics talking about it? What was the box office like? Um, and that provided kind of a template. So often what it came down to was I would allocate myself eight to 10 manuscript pages to tell the reader, here's what's happening on Broadway in these two years. Um, and the, the, the pleasure of doing that kind of micro <laughs> detailing is that, you know, Broadway, much like Hollywood, had a good year, had a bad year, right? But often when you read histories that have a grand sweep, they're talking about the 1980s in Hollywood, the 1990s. And it's like, well, but 1989 was very different than 1987 for some really important reasons. Um, so that kind of was really, um, it was kind of exciting and pleasurable to kind of just do a deep focused dive on, on a moment, but also kind of realizing that if we want to understand this moment, we have to pull out a little bit further than we traditionally have and do the work that we traditionally have not done, right? So Disney scholars in particular have often not paid attention to what's going on at other companies. Um, so when they're criticizing what Disney's doing or celebrating what Disney's doing, you don't really have an understanding of, you know, was this exceptional or was this representative? Um, and scholars who work on musical theater often don't look at the industry itself and think about how the industry has kind of shaped this thing, right? They talk about Broadway as an industry, but what were the trends, practices, the unions, the discourse, you know, what was shaping all these things. So I was trying to bring all those things into to concert with each other to point to how does an artist not only create, but how is an artist also a laborer operating within an industry and against an industry? And I hope that that's part of what the book was trying to show is that 
as brilliant as Howard Ashman is, as brilliant as Alan Menken was and Linda Wolverton were and Gary Truesdale and um, John Musker and Ron Clement, that they were often kind of bound by the mandates and policies and conventions and um, agenda of executives and of the industry itself and, and seeing how they kind of work and negotiate that um, to me is far more complicated and interesting than, you know, they had an idea and they made it, <laughs> which is never the case in Hollywood because Hollywood is always about art and commerce um, and the tension between the creative and the commercial. Um, so trying to foreground that tension rather than simplify it was um, one of the joys of it. That's why the book ended up being 96,000 words instead of, you know, a really interesting Wikipedia article. <laughs> Much more interesting than the Wikipedia article, though. Um, you know, one, one of the terms that you use early in the book that perhaps some folks may not be acquainted with is this notion of Disney musicals as integrated musicals. Mm -hmm. Can you can you explain a little bit about what that is and how Disney um, has kind of embraced that notion through some of its features? Yeah, so I spend quite a bit of time talking about the integrated musical. The short version of the integrated musical is the idea that the songs in a musical serve a narrative function, that they are integrated into the storytelling, right? So they're usually doing one of two things. They're either developing the plot or they're developing a character. So, um, you know, I think of a musical like Oliver and Company as a little bit more loosely integrated. There are some great songs in that, that, that film, um, but I wouldn't really call it a musical in the integrated sense in that the songs are often like, hey, let's take a break and have a little fun number, right? On the other hand, if you look at, say, part of your world, that's a really important moment in which Ariel is articulating what she wants. And as Howard explains, that's the moment that not only do we get a sense of why is she doing what she's doing, it's the moment we fall in love with her and root for her to get what she wants, right? So the song is there for a reason. And I think an easy way to think about this is if you remove the songs from the film, or if you just skip over the songs, can you still follow the plot? And often in the integrated musical, you can't because you've, you've musicalized key moments, right? So for the musical theater nerds amongst us, right? Thinking about the bench scene in Carousel, thinking about Shall We Dance in The King and I. Um, these are defining moments in those musicals that if you remove them, if you remove the song, then there's a huge plot development that's been extracted, right? Now, um, the sh as, to keep it as short as possible, this notion of the songs should serve a narrative function is just one way of doing musical storytelling, right? Um, you know, reviews are another way that we see musicals doing this or jukebox musicals don't always go with the integrated approach, right? Um, it's a very significant strategy in the history of musical theater, largely associated with figures like Oscar Hammerstein and some would say Cole Porter as well. And, um, you know, Irving Berlin, uh, Lerner and Lowe. Um, and the argument that's often made is that this was an attempt to show that musical theater was not just a confection, was not just a distraction, but was a serious artistic endeavor. 
um, and that it was borrowing um, scholars like Andrea Most have argued that it's kind of borrowing from the Gesundkunstwerk, which was this theory developed by Richard Wagner in the 19th century that opera could bring together design and acting and song into kind of almost like a super art. When I'm talking to my students about this, I, I talk to them about the end of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, where all the Power Rangers would come together to form a bigger Power Ranger, right? Like that's kind of what the Gesundkunstwerk is doing. Now, of course, as most reminds us, Wagner is an anti-Semite, right? Um, and there's a nationalism and an anti-Semitism to his thinking about the arts. So it's fascinating that these artists, um, pretty much all of whom were Jewish, would kind of take up this idea and uh, align it with their assimilation into American culture, right? Because the, the Broadway musical as we know it is an art form created by Black and Jewish artists who were being excluded from mainstream society. And yet we're often entertaining that same audience with their these shows. Um, so this notion of the integrated musical gets kind of developed and theorized by artists, right? And Lehman Engel is a musical director, which means, you know, he's in the orchestra pit. He's working with the singers on stage at some of the biggest musicals of the 20th century. And then he kind of does this departure later in his career where he's starting to train people. And so um, the Lehman Engel workshop that he started, he passed away in the early 80s, but it, it's continued in various iterations. Um, Howard Ashman wasn't a member, but was mentored by Lehman Engel. Alan Menken went through it. Maury Yeston, who did Nine, went through it. Janine Tesori, who did Kimberly Akimbo, um, and Fun Home went through it. Uh, Robert O. Lopez, uh, and I believe Kristen Anderson Lopez, who did, of course, um, Frozen, went through it. Um, so we see all these individuals who went through this workshop, learned this tradition, um, and then went off into film or went on to Broadway and took this tradition of the integrated musical with them. So what struck me about the integrated musical is in 1989, when Howard Ashman and Alan Menken are writing The Little Mermaid, integrated musicals were not in fashion, right? In Broadway, you had hyper-integration, where you almost have these like opera-like shows like Les Miserables and Phantom of the Opera, where you don't really get those kind of non-singing moments, often called book scenes. Um, they're, they're often very... Um, concise and, and there's often a lot of singing through in those moments, right? Um, Jessica Sternfold's work on the mega musical kind of talks about this. And in Hollywood, you have like Dirty Dancing and Footloose, which are not characters breaking out into songs. So the integrated musical is not popular on Broadway and it's not really popular on Hollywood at this moment. And yet Howard Ashman and Alan Menken show up at Disney and say, hey, so like there's this way that we have of telling stories and it doesn't really work in film. It doesn't really work as well in theater anymore but I think it'll work in animation. Um, and for me, it was crucial to think about how do artists understand what they're doing and how do they theorize in ways that film scholars or film critics theorize um, and how is that informing what they're doing? And the integrated musical allowed me to show that not only were artists engaging in a critical theoretical practice, but that the knowledge that was coming from Broadway into Hollywood created a road or created a relationship that allowed theater to come together more closely with film uh, in a way that we still see today, right? Um, major media conglomerates are investing in Broadway shows. 
um, sometimes because they know how much money they can make on the road, sometimes because they want to adapt them into movies. And this dates back to the earliest period in Hollywood, but it's really been reinvigorated in the last 30, 40 years to the point now where if you open up an IBDB page and see, you know, who produced this musical, you know, don't be surprised if you see Universal, Sony, Paramount, Disney, um, you know, the major media conglomerates often have a hand in this. And it really dates back to this moment where Disney hires a couple guys from Broadway and some people from theater in general, right? And, and not just Broadway, like some were coming out of the Chicago theater scene, some were based in LA, but people who are bringing theatrical training and knowledge into Disney and helping animation with um, management and with storytelling. Um, well, and as you mentioned too, no, that's, that's all really fascinating. And it makes me think too, you're talking about the rise of the mega musicals in the eighties and the shifting tastes of audiences uh, and, and who comprised the audiences on Broadway uh, over, uh, during that time, right? More out of towners. It's no longer the New York based audiences, but trying to learn folks from not learn. It's not like it's tempting people with candy, but really just like very showy, very over the top and, and not necessarily bad ways musicals, which again is, is very paradoxical to um, as you're talking about just um, kind of the flavor of how music was integrated into many films of the era. It's it's fascinating to see those counterpoints. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and one of the things I'm trying to um, document is how is Broadway changing, but also challenging how we've understood it, right? So a, a lot of the scholarship I read about this said, you know, oh, well, when Disney went to Broadway, they were just doing what Andrew Lloyd Webber had been doing. Um, and one of the, the provocations in my book is that actually Andrew Lloyd Webber was doing what Walt Disney had been doing. Um, because really what, what Lloyd Webber was trying to do with Cats and Phantom of the Opera in particular was to create a reliable, reproducible spectacle, right? That on the basis of its musical, its story, its production could be overwhelming, pleasurable, accessible, enjoyable, and really rendered the star, um, I don't want to say irrelevant, but let's say deprioritize them, right? So 1959, you're going to see Gypsy, but you're really going to see Ethel Merman as Gypsy Rose, right? But, you know, I've seen Cats on Broadway. I wasn't going to see Cats on Broadway because of any of the actors, even though they did a phenomenal job. And, and I'm not trying to devalue the actor's craft, but what I'm saying is that this is a different mode of production that is shifting the emphasis from the star and from the performer toward um, the scale and reproducibility, right? So it's not just about, you know, we can easily reproduce, we can easily replace the star with someone else who can perform the role. It's that when that role gets replaced, they're often restricted in what they can do with it, right? Because going to see Hello Dolly, for instance, with Carol Channing versus when Bette Midler does it versus when um, Pearl Bailey did it you're going to see how they're going to do Dolly differently, right? Or the example I often use with my student is Mrs. Lovett, right? In some versions, Mrs. Lovett is daft and mad. In other versions, Mrs. Lovett is, you know, a little droll, a little bit more playful, a little kind of over it, right? Like Helena Bonham Carter's Mrs. Lovett is not Angela Lansbury's Mrs. Lovett. But that's one of the pleasures of the theater is seeing an artist reinvent the role, right? there's less room for that in the mega musical and there's less room for that in the, the Disney musicals as well. 
Um, so it's a, it's a shift in the production, right? But it's also a shift in the audience, right? Um, the most profitable show on Broadway today, I haven't looked at the numbers this week, but last week was The Lion King, right? Like, what? <laughs> right? It's not Hamilton. It's not, you know, the Michael Jackson musical. It's not Funny Girl. It's not, you know, any of the other hit shows that are running right now. It's still The Lion King. And in some ways, what The Lion King is offering is not going to see a star, but going to see a spectacle, right? And it's become a bit of a tourist attraction. And that kind of reflects this kind of shift in who is consuming this. It's affected the price, right? So it goes from becoming, you know, oh, you know, my wife and I went into the city and saw a show to my family did our annual trip to New York and we saw The Lion King. Um, but what I was also interested there too is um, an elitism and a, a cultural nationalism, right? Like there's a lot of resistance to Lloyd Webber because of this, but a lot of it is kind of rooted in these kind of like Broadway should be American, Broadway should be sophisticated, Broadway should be challenging. And it's like, you know, how do we kind of deal with the fact that, you know, people are getting introduced to theater through Disney musicals um, while at the same time we're seeing this kind of pushback against them as not art or as theme park entertainment and, and how that's so loaded with kind of classist and elitist presumptions. Um, and that's a change that's happening in this moment as the dependence on that New York metropolitan crowd shifts to a tourist audience and not just in a, a, a tourist audience coming in from around the United States, but coming in from around the world. Right. Like one of the things that struck me when I went to see um, Aladdin on Broadway is during the intermission, when I'm just kind of very um, quiet and reading my program, I noticed that I was surrounded by people not speaking English. Right. Now, whether or not English is their second language or whether they don't know English at all, but they just like the music and the songs, it's interesting to see who is consuming this and how are they consuming it. Right. Or I went to see um, Phantom of the Opera last summer. Um, and a lot of the audience leaves after the first act. And then you remember that a lot, the first act kind of has all the bops in it. <laughs> totally. And then it, has, and then it has the big crash, right? And I think people are like, oh, let's get out of here. Let's go back to Times Square, right? Um, so, I mean, the audiences become, you know, are consuming in very different ways. Um, and, and who's to tell them that they're wrong for doing it that way? But I mean, there, there was a lot of anxiety um, and Frank Rich and, um, uh, I'm forgetting his name now, the, um, at the American Repertory Theater, Robert Brewstein. Um, a lot of the influencers within the theater industry um, are really having, uh, are taking issue with what's happening um, in a way that I both understand, but also would gently push back against as someone who, you know, is a working class, first generation college student. It's kind of like, oh, yeah. these are kind of, you know, first world problems you guys are having with this. But um, nevertheless, it, it points to um, changes in the industry. And, and in some ways, you know, the reproducibility of Phantom of the Opera, the reproducibility of Cats, it's almost as if theater is getting more movie-like at the same time that movies are getting more theater-like, right? Like Lumiere looking into the camera during Be Our Guest, on the one hand, is something that musicals have always done. Musicals have always acknowledged the camera in the way that you shouldn't acknowledge the camera, right? Um, but it also kind of betrays the musical's roots in the theater, right? Um, and we see this kind of um, crisscross happening, right? Like why is theater becoming more um, 
cinematic and why is film becoming more theatrical? Well, in part because the same companies are producing both, right? In a way that they hadn't been before. Um, and, and that matters. Um, it matters for what kind of stories get told. It matters who's the audience. Um, and it matters for um, what the American theater looks like. And there's a, a much more complicated story that I can only gesture to in this book, but you know, um, the rise of resident theaters, repertory theaters, independent theaters around the country in the 1960s um, really decentered the idea that New York was the home of American theater. Um, and yet Broadway becomes a very powerful, very lucrative, very important brand, right? You know, shows run on Broadway for a month or two just so they can go on tour around the world and say, we're a Broadway show. Not necessarily a successful Broadway show, but a Broadway show. Um, so I, I'm curious to see how Broadway as a cultural industry based in New York shapes our understanding of theater around the country. Um, and, and Disney understood that and Disney wanted that. They wanted that kind of middle class respectability that came with being associated with Broadway. Um, that, is, that is Eisner to a T. He is from Manhattan um, and he wanted Disney on Broadway because Disney had been seen as a children's company, even though even Walt Disney himself said, we don't make children's entertainment. Um, and he wanted the kind of respectability that came with Broadway. It's the same reason that Disney World in Europe is in France instead of Spain. Spain would have made more sense, um, as Sabrina Mittermeier points to. Um, but France had that kind of imprimatur that, that kind of drew in Eisner. Um, we can argue about whether or not for better or worse. Oh, I just came back from Disneyland Paris for the first time. And I must <laughs> say it's pretty awesome. Um, gosh, there's so much that I want to unpack with you, Pete, but I, I want to kind of shift our attention to something that you were discussing in your last few minutes regarding Disney's entryway, so to speak, um, into uh, the Broadway scene through Disney theatrical and all of that. But as you allude to, and as other folks have too, Beauty and the Beast was not necessarily the origin story for Disney on Broadway in that there, like Disney helped finance workshops for plays. There was the uh, Snow White at Radio City. Like mm -hmm. Disney had been dabbling with having a, a place in uh, Times Square in the vicinity. But you, you write about how, how Disney was kind of entering, with Beating the Beast at the very least, entering this landscape where Times Square in the whole area was suffering it had some challenging uh 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 i don't know how how to frame it as articulately as you but it was it, it was not thriving to say the least and and there was this notion of of disney disrupting the the kind of the the vibe of what that area would be mm -hmm. the, the reinvention of the the new amsterdam and ultimately this idea of well why is it an entertainment company like disney bringing a show on broadway it's just going to kind of uh, kind of reduce the quality and and consequently the reputation of beating the beast by some of the early critics was not super strong but ultimately that complemented by the lion king ultimately uh, enabled disney to show its its dominance and its strong quality in, in that space all that commentary to say what's your take on the impact that beating the beast had at the time of its debut in terms of changing conceptions of Again, the integrated musical on Broadway, um, but also bringing new audiences to uh, this area and to appreciate the the craft. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was pushing back, pushing back against in that moment was this idea that that um, Disney ruined Broadway or Disney ruined New York. Um, we can't deny that Disney had a major role in quote unquote the cleanup of Broadway. Um, what I wanted to show is that Disney, in some ways, is the the figurehead behind um, a concerted effort by nonprofit groups by the um, municipal government under the under Rudy Giuliani, right? So a conservative law and order government, um, and uh, in, in many ways the the liberal democratic government of Mario Cuomo, who's running the state, right? Um, so uh, I don't think Disney came in with the idea that we're going to clean up Broadway. I think um, they were looking for ways to clean up Broadway, and Disney became um, a vessel. Um, it was it was a mutually beneficial partnership um, between these various entities um, to kind of turn the area around. Now, I, I share your hesitation in talking about this too, right? Because on the one hand, you know, there was um, a great deal of, um, you know, petty crime happening in the area uh, of drug dealing, um, of, of uh, sex work as well. Um, and, you know, we can think about, you know, obviously we're concerned about violent crime, about sex work, we can, we can think about it in a more nuanced way as well. But um, at the same time, this area, because of the way that it had kind of repelled, um, you know, quote unquote, you know, respectable citizens, right, the, the, the middle class, the upper middle class um, tourists, right, it actually became a safe haven for many folks, right, including members of the LGBT community. Um, so I think one of the things we have to be careful about when we talk about this is quote unquote, cleaning up Times Square was not just about, you know, let's get some push brooms and a soapy bucket, right? It was, it was about displacing, um, marginalized communities, many of whom were racial, racial and ethnic minorities, many of whom were, um, members of the queer community, right? Um, and, um, that was done, um, under Rudy Giuliani, um, and Disney was complicit in that, right? Um, in the name of family entertainment, right? So I think that that is um, one of the things that I kind of wanted to kind of flesh out a little bit more was, you know, Broadway is kind of between a rock and a hard place, right? On the one hand, they're, they're clearly struggling, although there are a few shows um, like City of Angels or, you um, um, uh, crazy for you that are kind of seen as like, okay, like, you know, we haven't lost it completely. Um, uh, but on the other hand, the, the industry is, is suffering. Right. Um, and they're suffering in part because of a lack of talent. And I try to point to that, right. Like it becomes really hard to get a show on Broadway and, and Stephen Sondheim, who is the most influential person in musical theater the last 50 years, keep saying this in the press is like, we need to create a culture where, you know, artists can do this and not be poached by Hollywood. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the, um, the area was, was deemed unsafe by many people. Um, so, you know, that kind of um, contradiction and tension for someone like me, who's trained in cultural studies is incredibly fascinating, right? Because you have all these kind of power dynamics at work here. Um, but, and Beauty and the Beast was not well-received. Um, it was not really welcomed by members of the industry. Uh, it was not welcomed by critics. Um, it was mocked 
decried, derided by many in the New York intelligentsia. Um, and it was a huge hit. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, 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 it kind of is in some ways um, the latest iteration of what some people have called like critic proof shows, right? Um, that really don't need Frank Rich and the New York Times in the way that they, they used to need it, right? Um, I believe Frank Rich had been, was done doing theater reviews by the time Beauty and the Beast premiered, if I remember correctly. Um, but, you know, the New York Times' influence in the theater community exists to this day, right? Um, you know, through Ben Brantley, Jesse Green. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, there is a certain type of show that needs a, a winning endorsement from those critics. But there is another type of show that, you know, is the, the, the ch child and grandchild of <clears throat> Lloyd Webber and Disney that does perfectly fine without it. So, um, you know, Disney was part of a, a really important cultural shift in, um, in the Broadway community and in the Broadway industry um, that has sometimes not been taken seriously because it's just been easier to say Disney ruined Broadway. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that Disney created a place on Broadway for the uninitiated, right? I think there are people who go to the theater now because they were raised on Disney musicals. I think there are people who would not go to the theater if it weren't for a Disney musical. Um, I think Disney helped to diversify the kinds of things we see on Broadway. And some scholars have argued, one thing we can't deny is that um, The Lion King, for instance, employs a lot of uh, Black entertainers, including many of whom are um, African entertainers. Um, so, you know, we have to kind of balance these things. We can't be too comfortable with a, with a, with a generalization and a decree that just dismisses them outright because, you know, there's, there's an interesting cost benefit analysis here. I should also say while I'm praising Disney, um, it's very expensive, uh, to see a Disney show. Um, and they don't discount in the same ways that other Broadway shows do. I was just in New York last week and I saw, um, Kimberly Akimbo, which just won the Tony award. Um, I just got a rush ticket for $40. I don't think I've ever, I don't think Disney does rush tickets on its shows and they don't need to. Um, and uh, the, the one time I got to see The Lion King on Broadway, I think I paid about $119 to sit in the last row, which sounds about right, unfortunately. So this idea of theater going from being a casual entertainment to being an event entertainment um, is representative of where culture is headed in the last 30 years, but we also see it on, we see it on, in film too, right? Barbenheimer is a perfect example of it, right? The idea of film not just being something you do on a Thursday when you're bored with your, your friends or your partner, but you know, actually you're going to buy a ticket for the night of, you're, you're gonna go have your nice dinner and then you're gonna go to the movie and you wanna be there opening night, right? That kind of eventness um, has shaped not only film production, but theater production over the last 40 years. That's well, an answer to several questions, but <laughs> I was going to say, like, I feel like that could spark 10 additional questions, but yeah. you know, you uh, no, I, I I'm loving listening to you and, you know, it's making me think about, um, you know, there are all these contradictions and tensions, but, you know, we're ta you're talking about how, you know, New York uh, in the nineties was tr really trying to um, kind of clean up under this law and order notion and, and really, you know, displacing and, and making it not as, 
hospitable for racially minoritized and queer folks uh, uh, and, and, and additional communities as well. And yet I think about who comprises primary audiences for films, like going to movies, it's generally like people of color account for a huge proportion mm-hmm. of, of moviegoers, um, more like a higher proportion than uh, than white folks oftentimes for mm-hmm. certain features, not all, but but if you, you know, looking at, at ticket sales and then you're talking about Broadway on the other hand and how increasingly with Disney productions, how they're often cost you know, cost prohibitive for so many folks. And, and that creates, you know, even more paradoxes in terms of who is the art for. And yet, you know, and then a show The Lion King where, you know, uh, you know, the vast majority of the cast is, you know, is black of African uh, uh, descent and, and, and even a lot of the the, the creators and, and folks behind the scenes are, are folks in the queer and trans community. So it's, it's these really striking paradoxes in terms of who's responsible for the creation of content, not necessarily the executives, but like the, you know, behind the scenes. I mean, Howard Ashman being a perfect example of someone who is just a a, a brilliant person and and one of the, you know, early uh, individuals to, um, to die of AIDS and for him to have such a positive reputation. And, you know, the consumers of this content, it's it's really fascinating. I, I realize I'm not necessarily framing a question at the moment, but I'm thinking through with you how how there's just all these dichotomies in play in terms of consumers and creators of of this art that we can all really value as, as worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, th- there's various thoughts I have here. And, you know, earlier I mentioned that the Broadway musical as a form is interesting because it's essentially... Uh, Jewish and Black artists creating work that was largely consumed by, you know, whites and white Gentiles, right? Um, and in in some ways, we're kind of still stuck in this this crisis, right? Of, um, you know, Black representation on Broadway, um, especially shows written by Black artists, and not just shows that use Black artists, although those are obviously important too. And also creating um, a space where Black consumers, Asian consumers, Asian American consumers, um, Native and Indigenous, Latino, feel comfortable going to Broadway and feel represented, feel like this is an art form that wants them there too, right? I mean, I think that the, the numbers coming out of the Broadway League show that the average Broadway consumer is still middle-aged, is still white, is still female, Um is still coming from an upper middle class background, right? Um, so there, there are avenues of access, right? There are rush tickets, there are digital lotteries, there are school programs, and those are crucial. Um, but Broadway remains inaccessible for many still. Um, and how seriously Broadway is taking this problem as an industry is another question. That being said, we also can think about how there are other theatrical spaces that are doing this work in really exciting and important ways, and that you know, attention to Broadway risks erasing the important theatrical work being done in those spaces. Um, I think the other issue that I'm kind of thinking about here with um, Disney and Broadway, and in particular thinking about Disney and Broadway in, in our current moment, is how profitable Broadway has become. You know, before the pandemic, it was making over a billion dollars a year. Um, and how Broadway has become this kind of um, 
there's this intimate connection now between Broadway and the traditional media industries. Um, so one of the things that kind of really drew me to studying Broadway, Hollywood, and Disney in the 90s is how much theatrical content, um, although it can be pricey to see um, in person, is now readily available on platforms like Broadway HD. Um, although that's interesting because a lot of those shows are actually filmed in London. We can talk about the industrial reasons for that. Um, but, you know, uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, um, HBO to a lesser extent have um, filmed Broadway shows and as a way of kind of finding content that they can offer to their subscribers that is already developed and ready to go. Uh, all they have to go do is film it, right? So, you know, the idea that a show like uh, What the Constitution Means to Me or Passover or um, um, Oh, Hello, you know, like these kinds of uh, Springsteen on Broadway, uh, the prom, right, are getting adapted either as, you know, live captures, Hamilton on Disney Plus, most obviously, um, are either getting filmed as live captures or even getting adapted into feature-length films shows, you know, the interest in, in theatrical entertainment, um, but also the interest in attracting very specific types of audiences, right? Um, and I'll leave that for streaming scholars to unpack a little bit more thoroughly, but, you know, Broadway has traditionally served this kind of white middle-class audience. Um, and I think the kinds of shows we see ending up on streaming reveal streaming's investment in white middle-class uh, audiences, right? Um, but, uh, you know, Broadway seems to be as important for Hollywood now as it was and, and Hollywood broadly conceived, right? Because, you know, of course, Netflix and Amazon Prime are really Silicon Valley and Washington state companies. Um, but, you know, uh, as we saw in the 1930s. And you can, the fascinating thing for me in doing this kind of research is I went back and read articles in the New York Times in the 1930s and they were complaining about Hollywood. You know, stop stealing our actors, stop, you know, stop producing shows that you're just going to turn over into a script. You don't even want them to be theater. You just want to sell them to Hollywood. Um, and in some ways, uh, you know, everything old is new again. That's one of the lessons of being a historian is it, it, things rarely are sui generis. They rarely are just happening for the first time. They, they often have precedents and they often kind of repeat problems and trends and um, contradictions and tensions, in my favorite words, um, that, have, that have been longstanding concerns with the industries. One of my favorite words is fortuitous, which you said earlier. <laughs> and I think there are, there are many moments in which uh, I think Disney has uh, struck gold um, by virtue of people that have been folded under the company, um, Howard Ashman being the prime example, of course, mm -hmm. um, in starting out your book. And, and you leave the book, or you, you conclude the book, I should say, in kind of providing a state of, of the industry today where there's a lot of disruption, where there's a lot of... Um, uh, accessibility in terms of like Broadway, like a lot of the storytelling and subject matter is meant to be very commercial, very familiar, big stars, familiar franchises, content that um, has connections to Hollywood and, and vice versa. Mm. I, I guess I'm wondering what, what do you envision as the future of Broadway over the next five to 10 years by virtue of some of these foundational uh, pillars that you've established throughout your book? Yeah, and where Disney fits within that, if at all. <laughs> I mean, I think what we're seeing is, um, I mean, my theory, historians don't make very good um, prognosticators. Nevertheless, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. Um, 
I think what we're seeing with the strikes from the WGA and with SAG-AFTRA is that the economics of streaming um, were never really laid out in a way that was creator-friendly. And now it's been time for a reckoning of sorts. Um, I think that this kind of, you often see historically that as something happens, a, a counter impulse happens, right? So I'm thinking of, um, you know, uh, th there's this moment in um, Bolter and Grusin's remediation. It's a work of digital theory, right? Where they kind of talk about hypermediacy, right? We're, we're in this world where everything seems mediated and yet this desire for immediacy at the same time, right? So my theory is in an age of ubiquitous media where I can watch Netflix on my cell phone as I'm taking the, the bus to work, right? Um, I think what we're going to see is actually more and more event, site-specific entertainment as being central to the future of the entertainment conglomerates. And that was kind of one of those things that I was kind of gesturing towards the end is like media scholars need to think more about these things that we don't think of as mediated, right? We think of music albums as mediated. We think of movies as mediated. We think of TV shows as mediated. We don't think of theme parks as mediated in the traditional sense. We don't think of concerts as mediated in the traditional sense. We don't think of theater as mediated in the traditional sense. Of course, they're all mediated. And I think what we'll see more and more is that these media conglomerates are actually entertainment conglomerates and that um, the future of Disney, we see this in what they're doing in California and in Florida um, is going to be um, a strong dependency on site-specific, live, in-person entertainment. Um, and one of the things, I, again, that I gesture towards, but I don't really go into detail with, um, Stacey Wolf actually goes into some really great detail about it in her book, Beyond Broadway, is that when we talk about Disney on Broadway, um, some people are like, oh, yeah, they, they have like two or three shows, right? They have Aladdin, they have um, Lion King, they, have, they had Frozen, but they closed it. Um, so it seems like kind of small potatoes and that, that's like such a naive way of thinking about it because really what's happening with Disney on Broadway is there are sit down productions around the world where you can see the Lion King on any given night. There are touring productions and not just one, like I'm pretty sure, you know, quite often there's two, three productions moving within the United States, um, Broadway content, um, and, and Laura McDonald and, and Jessica Sternfeld have done work on this and, um, uh, um, David Sabron, right? But like Germany, right? Hamburg in particular, uh, uh, Korea, um, Japan, China. Um, mus Broadway musical theater is hugely popular in these areas. So when we talk about Disney and Broadway, we're not just talking about what's happening in two or three theaters on Broadway. We're talking about these shows that are traveling around the country and around the world. We're also talking about, and this is something that Stacy gets into a little bit more in her book that I think is fascinating for media scholars to take up too, because Stacy Wolf is a theater scholar. Um, but from a media studies industry perspective, right? Like we are seeing high schools, churches, amateur theaters performing Disney shows. And that's fascinating when they're not just performing theater, they're also pre performing branded entertainment, right? Um, so I'll leave it to my colleagues who are a little bit more, um, you know, 
further left wing, further Marxist than me, but you know, this, this idea of branded performance. Um, I mean, I think it's something that I was trying to get us to think about too, right? Because there's only so much you can do in a book, but um, you know, it's, it's an incredibly complicated, um, pervasive um, aspect of what Disney's doing. Uh, and yet, uh, as Tom Schumacher, who, who's run Disney's theatrical division for years has said, a hit Broadway musical makes more money for its creators than a hit film does, right? Uh, Julie Tamer is doing very well <laughs> on the Lion King money. Elton John is doing very well on the Lion King money. Um, so, you know, thinking about, uh, and the reason for that is because what we think about at these shows is so diffuse, right? I mean, um, I would have to check the numbers again, but there was a time, and I think it's still true, the most performed Broadway musical of all time, right? Including Rodgers and Hammerstein, including Cole Porter, including Lerner and Lowe, including Andrew Lloyd Webber, is Beauty and the Beast, right? Far and away. More than Oklahoma, more than Phantom of the Opera, more than, you know, any other show that's ever been written. Beauty and the Beast is the most performed musical by professional and amateur productions around the world, right? That's that's that matters right that really matters that matters for uh branding and disney that matters for theater that matters for children's entertainment right um and yet um scholars of disney have often kind of downplayed the theater division and um and it's only within i would say the last five or six years with amy's book uh which george rodostinos's book um, with Stacy's book that we're seeing a more critical uh, approach to not just Disney musicals, but Disney as a theatrical production company um, and, uh, and the influence that it wields both at home and abroad. Well, and now you can add your name to that docket because I think you're making going to be making a huge contribution in that space through all the different layers that you weave in through your original interviews all that and more. So that leads to um, the last question before uh, before I share it with you, some Disney opinion related questions, which is <laughs> how can folks actually purchase a copy of Staging a Comeback? We are recording at the tail end of July. This uh, episode is going to be debuting mid-August. Um, how can folks get ready to, to be reading your work? Uh, I think Amazon is probably the most obvious for a lot of folks, but if you order it through the um, the Rutgers University Press website. Um, and I can share uh, the discount code with you from, from the press itself. Um, I believe you can get 20 to 30% off and free shipping. Um, so the book's retailing for about $29.95, which is where academic books tend to retail at. But with the discount, I think it brings it down to about $21, which I hope people will agree is, is a little bit more uh, reasonable. Um, and, I, and I promise you there's some stuff in here <laughs> that. Uh, I hadn't read before, so I, I, I hope people will um, will take the time to read it or or recommend your library buy it. Tell your library, hey, get a copy of this this book on Disney theater and film. Um, but I think that those are probably the easiest ways. It'll also, of course, be available on on Kindle. And Pete, can you remind us of the release date? Uh, September fifteenth, but hopefully, you know, those tend to be a little flexible depending on how it goes with the printer. So I'm, I'm optimistic it'll be available hopefully by the end of August, but we'll see. 
And are there ways in which folks may get in touch with you if they have uh, any questions or want to follow in any additional work of yours? Uh, absolutely. Um, my uh, I have a I'm available through my email at, at Tulane University where I teach. So my email is pkunze at tulane.edu. Um, I'm also on Twitter for as long as Twitter or X exists um, at Pete Can't Tweet. Um, so I, I would love to uh, hear some thoughts and have some debates and um, and questions. Feel free to get in touch. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm I feel like a, a father who has just had a that <laughs> their baby's been born and now I want to share it with the world. So you know, tell me if my kid's cute or ugly. <laughs> well, well, the baby has what ninety thousand words or somewhat of length. That's it, 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 it's a big baby. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's about ninety six thousand words. It's uh you know the intro conclusion about six chapters and each chapter is about twelve thousand words. Um, but I think. My hope is because each chapter is kind of following a very strict structuring that people will be able to read the part that they want to read. So if you want to know what's happening in, at Disney, if you want to hear know what's happening on Hollywood, if you want to know what's happening on Broadway at any given time, you can kind of choose your own adventure and your way through it. Um, but uh, it, it certainly does not have a lack of detail. <laughs> Indeed. And, and for good reasons. You know, I, I picked up a lot of new insights by virtue of what you read. And I I, I would consider myself fairly adept um, in terms of Disney history, and I love being able to to be exposed to to new content and and stories that I hadn't heard. And um, and I'd like to at this point transition to some fun Disney opinion questions. Great. Uh, so uh, these, uh, I, when I first developed the podcast, I called this segment "Ask My Questions and Get Some Answers." Uh, I think that <laughs> that's very apropos today. Uh, so I'm going to ask you three music related questions. First one is, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Well, as many of your, uh, I was born in 1984, and I identify as a boy, male. Um, so shockingly, it was probably the Aladdin soundtrack, because that was the, that was the movie that was so heavily marketed towards babies of the 80s in 1992, when it came out. Um, and uh, as, as many fellow 80s babies will remember, uh, Robin Williams was and is um, God. <laughs> so uh, that film just seemed like the be all end all of films. Although I guess Lion King kind of gave it a run for its money too. But um, you know, in, in, my, uh, in my old age of 38, I think I've come around to the idea that Beauty and the Beast is my favorite. Um, but in terms of soundtrack, it was definitely, uh, Aladdin with Lion King is a close second. Very nice. Uh, and what Disney song has most recently become stuck in your head? So it's an earworm. You can't get it out. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I writing this book, I've become obsessed with Belle, right? Like her opening number. Um, mm. It's just such a jaunty little tune. Bum, 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 bum. So I, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it, it's Belle. And then, you know, listening to Alan Menken talk about, oh, you know, it's, it's based on, uh, you know, She Loves Me. For those of you who, who love Broadway musicals, good Broadway musical, good deep cut. Uh, <laughs> so um, I think Belle for me is, is the one that kind of is, is stuck in my head more often than not. Although Poor Unfortunate Souls would be a close second. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
Clementine and of course Ashman and Minkin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bell's in my top five of all time. What Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Ooh. I feel like I need to sit with this for a second. What Disney film do I feel? I think we're gonna have to come back to that one. Okay. Let's do that. That's uh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, so a couple of book questions. What is the most recent Disney book that you've read or book about Disney? Ooh, the most recent Disney book. I'm um I'm currently still reading it. Oh wait, um uh I'm reading Eve Benamu's book, Contemporary Disney Animation, um, which I believe came out earlier this year from Edinburgh University Press, um, and enjoying that. Um, and then, uh, but the last Disney book that I finished in its entirety was Fan Phenomenon Disney, which Sabrina Mittemeyer edited, which is all about, of course, um, how do we study Disney fans and Disney fan practices and, and things like that. And that was published by Intellect. Um, so uh, those are those are the two Disney books that are most recently on my, my docket. The Imagineering story is there, but it's intimidating. Oh, it's so worth it, Pete. It is. I, 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 have no, I, I don't deny it. I don't deny it. It's not a criticism. Uh, it's just a lot of words. <laughs> something you know, know well. better. And it's something I, right, exactly. Something I should know better as someone who has generated a lot of words themselves. But yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it also, I, I know in your thoughtful acknowledgments, you, you joked about using your, your book as a, as a book stop. I think Imagineering story could also uh, serve that <laughs> purpose because it is a tome. Um, yeah. In, yeah. In a great way. Yeah. Um, and I feel the same way about Neil, Neil Gabler's biography of Disney. I mean, that's another one that's very intimidating at first. And then you realize the level of, of research he's done and you're like, Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> If you could write a Disney book on any topic that you already haven't, uh, what would it be about? Ooh. Well, I do have some things in my back pocket, but I don't know which one, which of them are going to come to fruition. But, you know, I was thinking recently what I would love to read. And so I challenge it to someone who's out there to write, uh, or if it's been written, please let me know, uh, is the influence of Asian and Asian American artists at Disney. Um, I think that that is a great, exciting revisionist history to be written, right? We've got some great feminist histories of women at Disney, and um, but I, I would love to read something on um, AAPI folks at Disney and, and, you know, their influence not only on Bambi, but throughout the 40s and 50s. Um, and that was inspired in part through reading Didier Getz's um, Walt's People's Books. Um, really, the, the history of artists of color at Disney would be fascinating to read. So, yeah, but I would need, I would need access to the archives. And that, that's something we didn't talk about, right? Is, um, you know, some of us who do Disney history have access to the Disney archives and some of us don't. Um, so how do you kind of work around that, right? Because you, you can't really write the book if you don't have the sources to do so, especially the primary sources. Um, but, but hopefully that the, the company is working on such a history. I, I love those ideas. Um, I'm going to ask you one random Disney question. So I, I usually mix, I mix this up with every guest, um, usually to tie in with their, their topic. Uh, so what Disney Broadway show do you feel is better than the film version and why? 
And Broadway show, do I feel it was better than the film version? Hmm. I feel like you're trying to start some trouble. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, uh, I think a case could be made. I'm not sure I'm the one to make the case that, um, oh, actually no, the, the easy answer I think here is Newsies, right? Yeah. Um, yes, but thinking, there's not a right answer. Anim- I was thinking of the animated films. You can take it I think a device. case could be made for The Lion King, but because I think that the, and, oof, and Beauty and the Beast, I mean, if I can't love her, might be the best Beauty and the Beast song, arguably. Um, that's a hot take. Um, don't come for me on that, fans. Um, but th- that is a very beautiful song. Um, and Shadowland and Lion King is a very beautiful song. Um, so, uh, but I think Lion King would probably be the easier case to make that it might be better than the original film. I don't know. I was I rewatched the film Lion King recently, and I don't know. My, my 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 relationship with it has changed in a way that my beauty relationship has strengthened. My Lion King relationship has weakened a bit. Yeah, that's interesting because like I was born in '92, and so for me, Lion King, Pocahontas, and especially Hunchback were like the the pillars. And then only as I got a little bit older that I come to absolutely love beating the beast. And it's now my favorite Disney animated film. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think things change over time in that regard. And it's interesting. Um, let's harken back to the Disney film that you feel is the most underrated music. I was hoping you would forget. Um, I think a case could be made quite strongly for um, Oliver and company. Um, if we're looking at just the music, Right. Sure, sure. As you remember from my book, I, I argue that it's it's a film with music. It's not a musical. And George Scribner, when I had I, the director who I was fortunate enough to talk to, he kind of agreed with me on that. Um, maybe it's the lapsed Catholic in me, but I think I would make a case for Sister Act. <laughs> I, 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 I like I like the I mean, we don't really think of Sister Act as a, as a musical in the traditional sense. Right. But um, oh, it counts. Yeah, it counts. Right. The Especially Sister Act Two, like you know, um, uh, you know, thinking about the the joyful, joyful and no happy day scenes. I mean, you know, not necessarily obviously Disney songs, but certainly uh, remixed in exciting ways. But um, yeah, I mean, I I, I guess the, that would be my my provocative answer would be maybe maybe Sister Act. <laughs> I'll I'll take those provocative answers. Uh, Pete, it has been so much fun to talk with you, to learn from you, both uh, during this conversation and also in your book. Huge fan of it. Um, I certainly hope folks can engage with it and and t- you know have some new appreciation uh, for for Disney, the industry, and and you know be a critical consumer, which I think is a, a good uh, t- takeaway as well. So much appreciate your time. Thanks for the opportunity. This was really uh, a lot of fun, Brett. Thank you. Thank you again to Pete for joining me on the podcast. The book, once again, is called Staging a Comeback, Broadway, Hollywood, and the Disney Renaissance. I highly encourage you to pick up a copy. And there is a promo code, as mentioned. You'll want to go to RutgersUniversityPress.org and enter the promo code RUSA30. That's in all caps, RUSA30, and you will get 30% off plus free shipping. The book debuts September 15th, uh, although you might uh, actually be able to obtain it earlier if the odds are in your favor. Uh, That promo code is for U.S. orders only. Um, 
so you'll want to go to RutgersUniversityPress.org to see if there are additional uh, discounts for spaces outside of the United States, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N Reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.